Well, I understand that you've been uh, working your way through uh, the book of 1 Peter in recent times. And uh, last week, um, if I've got it right, you would have been doing chapter 2, where uh, Peter looked at how Christian slaves should relate to their non-Christian masters, even when they treat them badly. Uh, situations like that are always a real test for us as Christians to make our faith work when it's under a little bit of testing, a bit of pressure. And uh, our passage this morning is, uh, as Spencer's just read for us, the first 12 verses of chapter 3. And uh, if you like, it's a kind of a continuation of the theme that was begun in the last chapter. Um, Peter talked about how to relate to those people who are in authority over us. Um, he talked about how to relate to, in particular, masters. In our case, maybe the boss at work. Um, um, now, in chapter 3, and remember when the Bible was written, when the 1 Peter was written, the letter of 1 Peter, there were no chapter divisions. So it was just a, like a continuation of the same kind of uh, advice that Peter was giving to the, the folk in Asia Minor. Um, he addresses himself in these 12 verses to three groups of people. First of all, he addresses himself to Christian wives, then to Christian husbands, and then in verses 8 to 12 to all believers in general. But let's start by looking at um, Peter's word to the wives in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3. Just a little bit of background here. We need to understand that in the days of the, uh, of the New Testament church, many of the early converts were actually women. And there's a reason for that. You see, in the days of the Roman Empire, especially in the first century, um, it was very common for women to be treated like second or even third class citizens. Um, there are actually quotes that you can read from some of the ancient documents that say that women weren't much better than dogs. It's terrible for us in our day and age to think about this, but that's the way that women were viewed. And so when the gospel was preached in those early days, um, it was particularly attractive to the women because, you see, the gospel valued women. It made me, women feel as though they were, um, they were important to God. But what this did mean, however, was that then many of those women who were converted to Christ and joined those early churches didn't have Christian husbands. And so it's particularly important for, for Peter to give some, um, some words of personal advice to how these women should continue to conduct themselves when they're in an unequal marriage, a marriage where their husband didn't share their faith. Well, what does Peter say to these women? Well, he gives three bits of advice in verses 1 to 6. First of all, he tells them to have a submissive attitude to their husband. Look at verses 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, 
when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. This is one of those parts of the Bible that has the potential to be very controversial. Uh, it doesn't sort of fit well with modern ears about relationships and marriage. Some people would even go so far as to blame verses like this for the fact that, that uh, we have this problem these days called toxic masculinity. And toxic masculinity is a, a, a derogatory way of describing the way it is that, 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 that men dominate women. If that's true, and particularly if it involves Christian husbands and Christian men, um, that is a very serious problem. And we have to acknowledge that. There are some men, some Christian men, who do not accord to their wives the value that the Bible, that the gospel actually gives to them. And so this, this idea of submission and telling wives to submit to their husbands is something that is uh, very radical to 21st century ears. To modern ears, you mention the word submission and it sounds like domination. It sounds like chauvinistic, misogynistic men who are um, dominating women. And that's, you know, to modern ears, a recipe for domestic violence, domestic abuse. But it's interesting because if you look back to chapter 2, which you would have done in previous weeks, Peter's actually using this word submission quite freely. He tells people in verse 13 to submit to every human authority. Why? For the Lord's sake. Verse 18, he tells slaves to submit to their earthly masters. Why? In reverent fear of God. Submission's not a dirty word in the Bible, even if it is regarded like that these days. Submission is actually a thoroughly biblical, a thoroughly Christian concept, and it is fundamental, Peter says, to a biblical view of the marriage relationship. Again, we see it in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read this verse in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, again, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Just as we submit to the boss at work, just as we submit to the policeman, just as we, we submit to the football referee, just as we submit to the teacher at school, so Christians are, submit, are to submit to Christ and to one another. And what Peter is saying here is that wives are to continue to submit even to their unbelieving husband, as an essential part of their commitment to Christ. In fact, he says that their witness, their Christian witness, hinges on the attitude that they have to their unbelieving husband. Now, let's be clear. Peter doesn't say that a wife should submit to her husband if he is domestically violent towards her. 
or if her life is in danger. He doesn't say that he, she should submit to him if he is repeatedly um, unfaithful to her. He doesn't say he should, she should submit to him if um, she asks him to sin or to break the law or to give up her faith. He doesn't say that. But what he does say is that she should try very hard to show her commitment to her husband by respecting his authority and by having a submissive attitude to him. Why? Because this is what pleases God. This is the right thing for a Christian wife to do. Does this sound like sort of fairly radical stuff to modern ears? It does. This is practical Christianity. This is what it says in uh, verses 1 and 2 here of 1 Peter 3. The second bit of advice that Peter gives to these wives, he says, your actions are more important than your words. Again, let's read verses 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Peter doesn't say it specifically here, but he implies it. But he says to these, these Christian wives, don't lecture your husbands. Don't nag him. Don't judge him. Don't go around complaining about his non-Christian lifestyle. That's only going to annoy him. And it may be even have the effect of driving him away from Christ. It might drive him to the pub to spend more time with his mates if all the time you are in his ear, you know, making him feel like a second-class citizen in his own home. But what will grab his attention will be a wife who cares for him, who treats him with love and respect, who enjoys talking about what's going on in his life, who cooks nice meals, who's a good mother to his children, who makes the home a happy place. Those are the sorts of things which are going to make an impact upon this non-Christian husband. And when a woman has that kind of an approach, well then, her faith as a Christian is going to shine through and it's going to speak to him even without words. Of course, she'll be praying for the day when he will want to know more about her faith. What is it that makes you tick? Why are you such a lovely woman? It annoys me that you want to go to church and hang out with Christian people, but I, I cannot fault you as a, as, as, a, as, a, as a wonderful wife. What is it that makes you tick? And of course, if that day comes, and she'll be praying that that day will come, well then that will be her opportunity then to be able to articulate her faith. Please note, this doesn't guarantee that all unbelieving husbands are eventually going to be converted. Unfortunately, no. But this is God's word to wives who find themselves in situations like this. Um, I can think of many wonderful Christian women in marriages um, just like this. One day, uh, one lady I know uh, especially comes, comes to mind. Um, 
She became a Christian over 40 years ago when her first child was born. And that in itself was a, was a, a wonderful testimony. And over those 40 years, her faith has continued to grow and become quite strong. Um, her husband is a decent guy. I know him well. And he's never stopped her from going to church. But he has never shown any personal interest in the gospel either. This lady has never wavered in her faith. And she has never wavered in her submission to her husband. And as far as I can tell, they have a strong marriage. And I'm sure that the way that she shows her love for him and has continued to show that love for him, the way that she has continued to submit to her husband has been very honouring to God and has commended the gospel to him. Russell is still not a Christian and we are praying for that day when he will be saved. But that woman is exemplifying what these verses in 1 Peter chapter 3 are saying. The third bit of advice that Peter gives to these women is inner beauty is more important than outward beauty. Look at verses 3 to 5. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as an elaborate hairstyle, wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. In those days, and it's probably no different from today, there was pressure on women to look beautiful. And so they would spend a lot of time and probably a lot of money as well too on their clothes and their hairstyles and the bling that they wore. I guess in those days, they would have been hanging out for the latest Myers catalogue. No. Whatever the equivalent was back in those days. All right. But, but you see, fashion was a competition. Fashion involved a lot of peer pressure. And I guess it's pretty much the same today. Fashion actually generates a lot of insecurity among women. Things don't change much when it comes to this sort of thing. After 2,000 years, we're still facing the same sorts of issues. You never look good enough. You're never pretty enough. You're always fighting the effects of ageing. And sadly, I think sometimes men are guilty of actually putting pressure on women to engage in this sort of competitive stuff that, 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 that has a, you know, a, a real... I think, negative effect upon their marriage relationship. What Peter is saying here is women put far more emphasis on your character. Be beautiful on the inside. Let this inner beauty be far more important in your marriage relationship than how you look on the outside. That's what he's saying there. Look at verse 2. He talks about the purity and reverence of your life. Verse 4. He talks about the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. 
These are the fruits of the Spirit that speak so loudly in the life of a godly wife. It's her patience. It's her kindness. It's her joy. It's her loving manner. It's her faithfulness. It's her self-control. Those are the sorts of things that Peter says women should focus upon in their marriages. Again, he's not saying neglect yourself. He's not saying be frumpy. It doesn't, he's not saying ignore fashion. He's not saying be 10 years out of date. He's not saying that. That would probably annoy a lot of husbands if a wife was like that. But what he is saying is that your real sweetness, your real beauty as a wife should come from your character and not from your wardrobe. Your real beauty shouldn't come out of a tube of makeup. Some years ago, I, um, I heard a blind pianist with the, um, with the Gaither band, you know, the, the Bill Gaither band, uh, if any of you are old enough to remember them. Um, yeah, a, a blind pianist sing a song that he had written about his wife and the beauty of his wife. And the, the ironic part about this lovely song that he sang was that he had never, ever seen his wife. And yet he was able to write this song describing her beauty because, you see, it was her character, it was her kindness, it was her spiritual sweetness that had such an impact upon his life. And that's what Peter's talking about here. These sorts of qualities, this inner beauty, is so attractive. Friends, this is a, this is a very powerful word to wives and, and to all women, actually, not, not whether they're married or not. In these days when there's so much confusion about sexuality and gender and identity and all those sorts of things... People don't know how we're meant to relate to one another. And we need to hear this word. Ladies, focus on being godly in your character. Let Christ liberate you from the fashion industry. And men, don't put pressure on your wife to be a fashion plate. Affirm her, encourage her, appreciate her godly character and her humble, modest lifestyle. You see, these are the sorts of qualities that are going to last. That's the beauty that will last. And it will, becoming, and it will go on becoming more and more beautiful as the years go by. And it's the kind of beauty that builds strong and happy and enduring relationships. This is the sort of beauty that shows when a wife has been up all night with a sick child. This is the sort of beauty that shows when she's doing her third load of ironing at the end of a big day. The sort of beauty that shows when her husband forgets her birthday or doesn't notice her new dress. Shame on men if they don't take notice of their wives and affirm their wives. But praise God that there are women who are beautiful in the sorts of qualities that Peter is talking about here. And then in verses 5 and 6, Peter uses Sarah, Abraham's wife, as an example. 
For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. The interesting thing about Sarah if we read about her in the book of Genesis, is that she actually seems to be quite a strong woman. She's not a shrinking violet. She was certainly able to speak up for herself when necessary. And Abraham took notice of what she said. For sure, she wasn't a perfect wife, uh, as we see when it came to Hagar and the birth of Ishmael. But the point that Peter is making here is that, is that Sarah, Abraham's wife, she illustrated what it looks like to be a submissive wife. She treated Abraham with respect. She willingly chose to submit to his authority. And it wasn't a, a, a fearful, cringing sort of submission. It was a glad and a deliberate choice that she made to place herself under Abraham's authority. And what Peter is saying here is that's the way it should be for Christian women today. Even those women who happen to be married to an unbeliever. You see how radical this teaching is for us today? He's not telling women to be doormats for men to walk all over, not at all. But he's calling on them not to simply take the easy way out of a difficult marriage and head for the divorce courts. He's saying, hang in there, women. Keep loving your husband, even if he isn't the perfect husband. Keep living your life before him. Let your witness as a Christian show. Keep praying for him. And what he wants is for that husband to see the positive difference that Jesus Christ makes in his wife's life. Where, where, where does this concept of submission ultimately come from? It comes from Jesus. He is the one who knew what it was like to submit himself to the will of his Father, to become a man, to live under all the awful circumstances in which he had to live his life, to experience the humiliation and the injustice and ultimately finding himself nailed on a cross. He did not demand his rights. And what he's saying is that we need to be like Jesus in the way that we conduct ourselves in our relationships. Okay, so that's some words of advice to women. Now for men, verse 7, a word to husbands. In verse 7, Peter uses the same phrase as he does in verse 1, referring to wives. He says, in the same way. In the same way. Because this is the way that God wants it to be, he applies this principle of being humble and being godly to husbands. And he says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner 
and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. In this case, he doesn't tell a husband to submit to his wife, that his wife's role is different. But a Christian husband is to care for his wife in several different ways. Firstly, he, uh, uh, Peter says, care for your wife physically and emotionally. Again, just, just keep your eye on verse 7 there. Be considerate as you live with your wife. Treat her with respect as the weaker partner. In the ESV, it says, live with your wife in an understanding way. The word in the Greek, which is translated to live with, is sometimes used to refer to sexual intimacy. And that is certainly part of what it means to be a sensitive, loving, caring husband. To be sensitive in the area of sex in their relationship. But, there, but then there is a part about a woman being... There's the, this part about a woman being the weaker partner. What does that mean? I mean, despite what many feminists say, women and men are different. And we're different not only physically, we're also different emotionally. And men need to acknowledge this, and yes, women need to acknowledge it too. But particularly men need to make a serious effort to understand their wife. They need to learn to appreciate what it is that makes their wife tick. Very important in marriage. I know that we laugh about sensitive new age guys, but I think some of us who are older school need to be a little bit careful here that we don't take women for granted. I have five sons. I have four daughters-in-law these days. It's been very interesting me, for me to watch the way that they um, conduct themselves in their marriage. And I am quietly impressed with the way that they are showing sensitivity to their wife. I'm not saying that I was a bad husband. I think my wife and I had a wonderful marriage Unfortunately, she's now passed away. But, but I mean, it's, it's nice to see that these guys are, are, are very intentionally trying to understand their wives, to work out what makes them tick, and to be sensitive to their particular needs. A husband needs to learn to be considerate. He needs to protect his wife. He shouldn't overload her with physical jobs around the home and with the children. She might be a little bit weaker on the beep test or in the gym, but that doesn't mean that she isn't capable of doing all the tasks that come with being a busy wife and mother. I mean, or in fact, of the, the stamina and the strength that, of many women that I know. I know what it's like to stand in the labour ward and Watch my wife deliver six, our six children. What a champion. The point is that any husband who is worth his salt should honour his wife, 
should be sensitive to her physical needs and her emotional needs. He should be kind. He should not be demanding. He should make time for her. He should be an encourager. But the second thing that Peter says to husbands is that uh, they should honour their wife as a sister in Christ. In every sense, she is a spiritual equal. She's an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. As uh, Galatians 3.28 puts it, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's talking about the spiritual equality that applies to both men and women. This idea, again, was very revolutionary in the culture of the day. Women were treated, as I said before, as second or third class citizens in Roman society, in Greek culture. And yet the Bible is very clear here that women are heirs together with you, the gracious gift of life. Christ gives full value and dignity and freedom to women. I mean, when you think about it, this was the original women's liberation movement. Men, it's our job to make sure that we give the women in our lives the dignity and the status and the honour that the gospel gives to them. There is absolutely no room for putting women down or seeing them in any way as of lesser value in God's sight. And it doesn't matter that we're talking about your wife or about the women that you interact with in the workplace or other women in the church context here. We're all equally made in the image of God and in Christ we equally share in the blessings of salvation. And can I say this morning that, you know, I mean, I don't know you guys and so I can, I can speak my mind quite freely here, but, uh, but can I say to the men this morning, you know, that if you've been guilty of treating your wife poorly by any of the criteria that we've been talking about this morning, or maybe it's not your wife, maybe it's a woman at work or some woman that you're involved in ministry with here in the church, if there's anything about your relationship with that woman that is condescending or that devalues her in any way, can you please apologise? Put that right. This is God's word to us this morning. And it comes with a very serious condition attached to it. And it comes just at the end of verse 7. It says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Wow. The thought that the way that we treat men, I'm talking to, that we treat the women in our lives can affect whether God chooses to answer our prayers or not. What a thought. If there's any pride and chauvinism within us, and that comes across in our attitude to our wife or to some other woman, it might become a blockage to our prayers. Well, we must push on. Then finally, Peter has uh, a word to all believers in verses 8 to 12. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. 
Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. These words are a kind of summary statement as Peter comes towards the end of this long section dealing with different relationships. He's talked about how Christians should relate to government authorities. He's talked about how Christians should relate, uh, Christian slaves should relate to their masters. He's talked about how a Christian wife should relate to her unbelieving husband. It's talked about how men should relate. And now he says, this is some general advice for everybody in terms of their relationships. You know, being able to get on with other people is so important, and especially for those of us who are Christians. There are some people who, um, who, who are naturals. They find it easy to develop relationships and maintain relationships and to smooth over any little little sort of um, annoying things that happen between people from time to time. But, but there are other people who always seem to be lighting bushfires. They always seem to be struggling to, you know, at some level in their relationships. Many of the most painful pastoral issues that I had, I've had to deal with over the years have involved broken relationships between Christians. People with different personalities, people with a different view of the world, People who have very strong opinions and don't seem to be able to budge from those opinions. On social media these days, there are literally thousands of so-called experts or influencers who are dispensing advice about relationships. And people love to read what they have to say because they want some teaching, they want some advice about how to do relationships better. Well. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter gives us some relationship advice in these verses here. Look at some of the things that he lists off. We haven't got time to go through them all in any great detail, but we'll just make a note of them. Be like-minded, he says. That's the um, NIV translation. Have an, in a sense, what he's saying, have an attitude of cooperation want to get on with people, want to live in harmony with other people, have a common mind with people, be sympathetic. Sympathetic people are people who have the ability to be able to come alongside and support others who are having a hard time. If you're sensitive to the needs of people in your life there, you're able to come alongside of them, be sympathetic, love one another. The literal word in the Greek is the word Philadelphia, Philadelphos. It's talking about brotherly love. That's the kind of love that we are to have for those in our lives. Be compassionate. Well, the ESV, I think, translated, be tender-hearted. It's so easy for us to become immune to the pain of other people. We see so much, so much um, suffering and trauma 
on our television screens these days. It, it kind of doesn't, doesn't, doesn't touch us anymore. We don't get affected by it the way that we should. We need to be more tender-hearted. Be humble. Humility is a, is a, is a very distinctly Christian virtue. Back in the days of the, the Romans and the Greeks, Christians were mocked because of their focus on humility. And I think today, sadly, as a society generally, we are starting to move away from humility, seeing humility as a virtue. Little children from a very young age these days are, are, are taught to stand up in front of other people and to promote themselves, to tell other people how much better they are than others. And this is all in the name of developing you know, a healthy self-esteem or whatever the case may be. But Christians are to be different. We're to build our lives on humility. And this is the way that Jesus exemplified it in his own life so powerfully. Good relationships come out of humble relationships. Verse 9, don't retaliate. In fact, not only should we not retaliate, we should pay back with a blessing. And you know, when we're in a situation of conflict, it can be very easy to just to trade insults, to give as good as we get. In the last couple of verses... Uh, verses 10 to 12, it's actually a quote from Psalm 34, a direct quote. And Peter says, watch your tongue. Enough said. Our tongue can be like setting a spark to a bushfire. Okay, do good and hate evil. Verse 11, pursue peace. Uh, I mean, if we could put all these together... Really, what we've got is a, is a, is a short, I know it's a summary statement, but some, but, but some very good practical advice about how to get on with other people, whether that be our Christian friends, whether it be an unbelieving spouse, maybe even with our enemies. Now, again, I don't know who I'm speaking to specifically today, but I suspect that there are at least some of us sitting here today you know, who, who are in some difficult relationships maybe some prickly relationships. And we know what it's like to have to work hard at them. You know, I, from a pastoral point of view, I've had to get people in the room and sit them down and try and help them to sort of resolve the differences which have been, which have been destroying their relationship. Sometimes it's a married couple. Sometimes these situations never get resolved. They end up in a divorce court. People who once upon a time used to be good friends no longer talk to each other. Families break apart. People leave churches. Those sorts of things happen. And I'm sure you know of cases like this. Maybe you've experienced you know, a, a painful relationship breakdown like this yourself. I mean, even two great men like Paul and Barnabas had a falling out and they decided no longer to work together in ministry. These situations can be extremely painful and they are never easy. 
you know, sin in all of its most ugly and divisive forms can do so much damage. But, you know, I wouldn't have devoted the last 35 years of my life to pastoral ministry if I didn't believe that God can actually heal the deep wounds of broken relationships. If I didn't believe that God could reconcile people who who have been enemies. But it does require huge doses of love and of humility. It does require great care with words. It does require a serious willingness to seek peace and to pursue it, as Peter is saying here. It's really only because of the grace of God and that grace working through the hearts of sinful people that two people who have fallen out can actually come back together again but it is possible as I said I'd give up if I didn't believe that God could still do miracles like that he can take away anger he can, he, he can smooth over the bitterness and the resentment and the revenge that has been building up in some cases over many years Only God can erase the memories of the past. Only God can change the hardened heart. Only God can bring forgiveness. Hmm. And so as we come to the end of this passage this morning, let me ask, how is it with your relationship? What about your marriage? What about the family? Is everything okay here in the church? What about the workplace? Uh, As a result of what God has been saying to us from his word this morning, friends, we need to ask ourselves, is there a relationship that I need to put right? Sadly, we may not be able to resolve every serious rift that has taken place. And I think the reason for that is the fact that it takes two people in order for reconciliation. One person, it's a good start, but it requires another person to come on board. But we are responsible for playing our part if there is a a relationship problem. Maybe it will start with a phone call or a text message, maybe an email. Even before that, we need to be praying and asking God for wisdom to help us work out a process. Humanly speaking, it may be impossible, all right? But with God, all things are possible, aren't they? And so let me finish up by leaving you with the words of Romans chapter 12, verse 18. I must admit, I often remind myself of these words and share them with other people. If it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Good verse, isn't it? If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And that's God's challenge to us personally this morning. And so may we know his help as we take up that challenge in our relationships over the, the coming days. Let's pray. Our loving God, thank you for the practical way that you're 
ancient word speaks to our lives today. There's so much confusion about husbands and wives and roles in marriage and how relationships are supposed to work. Lord, it's your voice that we need to be hearing. And more than that, it's your voice that we need to obey. And so give us a special measure of your grace, we pray, as we interact with other people in this broken world. May our relationships, Lord, reflect the reality of Jesus in our lives. And even when problems arise, Lord, give us the ability to keep loving others and to keep being able to forgive and to keep on striving to live at peace. And Lord, we do pray especially today for people, those that we know who are in very difficult situations. Well, Father, encourage them to keep trusting you. And may their life be a faithful and a powerful witness to Jesus Christ as they do so. And Lord, we ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.